0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, podcast dedicated to speaking with authors on their most recently published work. My name is Matthew Long and I will be your host for this Islamic Studies section interview with Professor Asma Saeed. Studies on the subject of women's participation in religious and intellectual life in Islam have been few. Women and the Transmission of Religious Knowledge in Islam by Professor Asma Saeed of UCLA is a much needed addition to the fields of history, the study of Islam, and women's studies. Professor Saeed leads readers through nine centuries of religious, social, and intellectual history of women's participation as transmitters of hadith, the words and actions of Muhammad. Women's participation within this area was not static, but ebbed and flowed throughout history as demonstrated in this book's four chapters. Women were critical in the dissemination of hadith in the first century of Islam. However, as the study of hadith became more specialized from the 4th to 10th century, women were marginalized as transmitters transmitters which Said validates with quantitative data from chains of transmissions, or Isnads, from numerous Hadith collections. By the 10th century, however, the canonization of Hadith was by and large complete, which ushered in a new phase in which women again became important actors in the reception and propagation of Hadith. This period would last until the end of the Mamluk period and the rise of the Ottomans in the 16th century. However, this second decline in women's participation would be for different reasons. Throughout each phase of this history, Professor Saeed provides case studies on different women to further her argument of the participation of women, even at the least active moments, as propagators of Hadith. Professor Saeed has brought new understanding of women's intellectual lives in the history of Islam and has opened the door for further inquiry into this often understudied subject. Hello, and welcome to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Professor Asma Saeed about her book, Women and the Transmission of Religious Knowledge in Islam. Hello, Professor.
1: Hi. How are you, Matthew?
0: I'm doing well. And you? Good. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us today uh, to talk about your book. Um, and I really want to say that this was a great read and probably something, there have been a lot of contributions to the field of uh, Islam related to women, but I think this one was also probably long overdue. And it's an excellent study on a specific genre, and that's hadith. Um, but I will get to that in one second. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, you know, biography, a little bit about your studies as well?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, I am currently Associate Professor of Islamic Studies in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at UCLA. Um, I My specialties, really, my research specialties, I like to think of them as um, within uh, early and classical uh Islamic history, focusing on social history, the intersections of social history and law, and um, women's studies as well. And uh, I am particularly now interested in the history of Islamic education. I teach undergraduate courses on intro to Islam, Islam in the West, which takes me a bit out of my range of specialty, and the Quran, and then graduate seminars on various topics of interest to me. I also teach one on research methodology.
0: Wonderful. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this work?
1: Sure. Um, I, I have to say, I mean, there, there are different trajectories that uh, brought me here. Um, uh, you know, my journey to Islamic studies, if you want to call it that, it actually started at Princeton when I was an undergraduate student. And I was exposed to the thought and work of two people who eventually became my mentors Hussein Mandarisi, who teaches uh, um, Islamic law and Shiism, among other subjects at Princeton, and uh, Michael Cook, who is a very well known historian, of course. And uh, they had a profound influence on me with respect to my approaches to the sources, um, my understanding of what constitutes good history uh, in Islamic studies. And, um, you know, I I transitioned from, of course, undergraduate to graduate work at Princeton. And I had um, around the time I became a graduate student, I became I I was becoming increasingly interested in understanding women's roles in contemporary Muslim societies and in making sense of uh, sort of what I think are very conflicting views about women's status in Islamic doctrine and thought And um, around this time, I also had the good fortune to uh, meet Khalid Abul Fadl, who's a leading Muslim public intellectual who joined the Near Eastern Studies Department at Princeton as a graduate student at the time. And he, too, was uh, very much concerned with the history of Muslim women and their roles in contemporary Muslim societies. And at um, one point, we had a conversation about the very rich history of women as jurists, that is, as legal scholars in the Muslim tradition. And I thought to myself, "Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't heard about Muslim jurists. I'd love to know about them. And um, I began to look for them in the historical sources. And instead of coming across lots and lots of jurists, I came across basically hundreds of female Hadith transmitters, in um, the historical records, and they just hadn't been studied. And um, this was also around the time in the late 1990s, I believe, when we started seeing reports of the Taliban's very harsh policies towards women's education in Afghanistan. And all of these, uh, you know, what I was seeing in the contemporary world was very much contradicting what I was reading about in history. And um, and I started to try to make sense of this history and uh, the ways in which Muslims understood women's religious education and participation. And this basically, I mean, guided by, um, I think, my mentors were sort of very, very much invested in uh, understanding the sources for what they meant at the time. Um, this, you know, this became the project that I decided to devote my career to unraveling this history.
0: And that's exactly uh, what you do in your introduction to the work. You talk about uh, a broad time period, starting all the way from the first from the first century in the Islamic calendar, all the way till pretty far. Well, it's at least until the sixteenth century, seventeenth right. century, modern. So, and you develop a very clear thesis of specific time periods and how you know things changed over those time periods for women as transmitters, right? Could you elaborate a little bit on um, that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, and you're talking specifically about the chronology, right? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I just wanted to step back a little bit uh, before I talk okay. about the chronology and talk about how I got there as well because I think – or I got to understanding the chronology because I think that that um, is uh, important and interesting. Um, when I uh, first surveyed the sources – I saw that there was a real concentration of material in the Mamluk period, uh, particularly around the 13th and the 14th centuries of the Christian era. And um, that's where the source material is very rich. And we have, you know, a lot of primary sources uh, that are detailed from from there. Um, And I knew, you know, I thought, okay, I'm just going to work on Mamluk woman um, and get this dissertation done, written. Um, But I knew that I first needed to understand sort of the broad outlines of women's participation in this in this domain. I expected no surprises. I mean, I just started kind of reading from, you know, the sources that we have at the beginnings of Islamic history uh, up to the Mamluk period, just taking very detailed notes. Um, and as my research progressed and I was organizing my notes, I discovered that there is a really unexpected chronology. It's the chronology of the establishment of a tradition in the, era of the companions, that is those who actually saw, saw Muhammad uh, and were reporting on his actions and deeds after his death. And then there's this incredible disappearance of women from the records altogether. And um, uh, sort of around the 4th let let's say the, the end of the ninth, uh, beginning of the 10th century of the, of the common era, there's a slow revival of women's participation. Um, That really becomes a flourishing, a peaking in the Mamluk period. And then it uh, wanes again um, in the early Ottoman period around the uh, beginning of the 16th century. So, um, you know, this is a really unexpected chronology. Um, I could not understand what it was that would lead to women completely disappearing from the historical record for about a period of a century and a half to two centuries. Why? prior to the rise of feminism, right, um, which we attribute for to, uh, which we credit um, with all things positive related to women, there would be this incredible revival of women in the domain. So, um, you know, each chapter is kind of devoted to examining what's going on in distinct periods of Islamic history within a broader historical context. Um, and, of course, with respect to women's hadith participation.
0: Well, then, Shall we just go ahead and jump right into it? Absolutely. Okay. So then, the introductory, the uh, I should say, the first chapter. um, You are looking at that section of the companions, right? And you, um, well, you talk about a number of different uh, sort of categories. Um, There, there are certain categories that form the bulk, and then other categories that play a significant role, but they're not quite as. Strong in terms of just the sheer number, quantitatively, in terms of how hadith were transmitted from Muhammad.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to ele- elaborate on that more. And you know, in the era of companions, I mean, we have something like, I'll say, ten to twelve percent of women who are uh, the narrators or are credited with being the narrators of tradition amongst all companion narrators, and of course. Um, there are two uh, figures that are very uh, important as far as women go in this in this period, and I should say, of course, here it's it's Aisha who is um, known as being one of the favored wives of the Prophet Muhammad, according to some, the favorite wife of the Prophet Muhammad, who's credited with something like 1,200 uh, traditions. Um, or Hadith reports. And then there's Umm Salama, who is also another leading, very prominent wife of the Prophet Muhammad, who's credited with far less, but um, uh, something like 370 traditions, if I remember correctly. And then after that, you have, um, I mean, the the woman I studied, the the numbers are, I think, like 110 women left who um, come from all different walks of life, let's say, some of them are, um, uh, the kin of Muhammad, his aunts, his, uh, um, uh, you know, in, in different ways, just re- related to him. Um, uh, there are those who were interestingly prominent as uh, contributors to the battle effort. There were women who sought his fatwas or legal edicts on different matters. And so their words or their experiences with um with uh, Prophet Muhammad, are recorded in the Hadith. But they really run the whole range of different types of actors, so let's say actresses, in, in early Islamic society.
0: And uh, you also talk about the, some of the circumstances that um, in which some of these traditions were related as well.
1: Right. Um, I mean, there are... Okay, so let's... Uh, um, take for example and there's a very interesting case that crops up in a number of other studies that predated mine but there's a, a very well-known woman named uh, fatima bint case who had um had uh, been divorced or had been issued a proclamation of divorce uh from her husband while he was away uh at battle and um the whole case revolves around whether this woman Fatima is owed any kind of uh, allowance uh, let's say to to help her get through the what is in Islamic law is called the waiting period uh, right after her divorce um, before she can remarry and um, interestingly I mean in the records that we have Fatima um, reports what the Prophet told her which is that she's not owed any uh, sort of such allowance by her ex-husband. And the reasons for that are complex. I don't want to get into them. But beyond that, I mean, it's really, it's intriguing because she sort of argues with the governor of Medina, Marwan, uh, at the time, as well as with other very prominent companions about the ways in which her report should be interpreted and uh, how Islamic law should be derived from it. Um, A very different uh, example is um, of a woman named uh, Asma bint Abi Bakr, who was actually Aisha's uh, sister. Um, and she has a number of very interesting traditions. Some of them relate to the ways in which, um, you know, what the prophet advised when they were praying at the time of the solar eclipse. I mean, it seems to be a very sort of random set of traditions, but it actually has. Um, implications for ritual practice, implications for understanding how uh, Muslims absorbed um, uh, sort of the understanding of what a solar eclipse meant in their religious tradition. Um, then we have reports of women talking about their participation in the battle, um, seeing Muhammad leading prayers, seeing Muhammad uh, 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 sort of being the recipient of revelations uh all, all different settings, basically, for their reports. Okay.
0: And what, what did you find most intriguing during this aspect of your study?
1: Um, I think just the range, the incredible range of women's uh, reports that they're credited with. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, when we think about to what kinds of areas um, – uh, woman may be authoritative for, right, when transmitting religious knowledge. I mean, certainly my gut instinct when I started this research was to expect that women would be transmitting information about stuff related to women. So, in Islamic law, for example, there's a whole area of law called ritual purity, um, uh, you know, uh, dealing with different aspects of uh, purity, ritual purity for the purposes of performing prayers and other ritual actions. And I thought, okay, women are going to be talking a lot about that. Women are going to be talking about domestic matters, right? How relationships with husbands, divorce, etc. But I mean, really I found that women reported on all sorts of uh topics. I mean, there is a bit a bit of a concentration for Aisha and Um Salama and some of the other wives on issues that we might call women specific issues. But there really is a range. And um you know related to that, it's uh, I think that range reflects a communal memory of women being active in all different arenas, public arenas as well as private ones. Yeah, that, that's what was intriguing for me. Mm-hmm.
0: And what I definitely one part that I remember was that something that you had said about Aisha specifically about her range of distribution that it, she sort of, I don't know if you would say kind of absconded what we might think of as traditional passing from one person to another, that she actually transmitted to a number of different people.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. she's, and and, and, and that's true of a number of these women. I mean, they're, um, I think it may be anachronistic to call them learning networks for this very early period. We don't really have formalized learning networks, Um, but uh, the extent to which men and women from all different walks of life saw these women as authoritative, um, uh, you know, and ultimately when we look back, we call them learning networks, but um, uh, you know, they were, uh, they, they were clearly authoritative for a range of, people male and female
0: mm-hmm. oh wonderful and um then after this kind of initial period we kind of then move forward to the next section of your work where we talk about the successors right and you'd Lay out some case studies, but in that chapter, you really develop sort of a different phase of what's occurring. Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, and, I mean, just, uh, you know, for the, for the listeners, successors here is a, a technical term referring to the generation immediately um, after the companions. Uh, so um, uh, early, uh, sorry, late first century of the Islamic calendar around the eighth and ninth centuries is, uh, what I'm talking about for the, uh, common era calendar. Um, and I use successors in that technical sense, but also a broader category of sort of the two or three generations immediately after the companions. And, um, you know, being people who expect historical continuities, I guess, um, uh, I'm certainly one of them. I, um, fully expected that we would continue to see this uh, tradition of women's participation in hadith or just a woman being involved in uh, transmitting reports about the Prophet in generations after the companions. Um, And not only do I expect to see a continuity, but I expected that women would do more with the tradition that is that they would develop their legal learning, be involved in um, sort of Communication of knowledge that showed a sense of legal discernment. How can we apply this in terms of Islamic law? What uh, principles can be derived from it, etc.? And um, I didn't see that. I, In fact, um, as, I, as I discuss in my book, I mean, there really only are a handful of women in the successor generation. Amara bin Abdul Rahman is one, Hafsa bin Sirin is another, Umad Erda and as a third. And I think there I've covered the three main prominent women um, mm-hmm. of that generation. But um, they're really, and even their activity is fairly constrained. So there's this, initially, there's a very sharp decline. Um, and then there's this complete disappearance of women from the historical records. And um, with respect to their hadith transmission, and it really is is striking because in the generation before, I mean, women really are—they're not everywhere, but there are substantial amounts of them, and they're active. And um, you know, I I think that um, what was interesting to me here is that yeah, across religious traditions, I mean, whether we're talking about Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, there is this idea that. Um, what we might call the institutionalization of religious tradition soon after the death of the founder once we begin to see um, articulation of religious institutions theologies doctrines you see you do see a decline in women's participation and we see something very similar with respect to women here i think it's the professionalization of hadith that is the creation of, if not institutions, then more formalized networks for transmitting hadith that's responsible for women falling out of the picture, as it were. Um, there were, are several criteria that are really important or become important for people to continue to engage in this arena, which is formalized as the arena of hadith transmission. Um, and you know, one of them is that you need to be able to go meet with your teacher face-to-face. I mean, the idea that you uh, sat with the teacher, spent a long time learning from him um, uh, what his traditions were and getting an explanation for, for you know, sort of their legal ex, uh, implications, that was very important. Um, another thing that was important was being able to display a sense of legal acumen, legal discernment, which also requires a particular type of training. And finally, around this time, that is the um, uh, around the eighth, ninth centuries, you begin to see a movement, which we call we call the Rihwa movement, right? But these are journeys that often solitary journeys that scholars undertook in order to collect reports or traditions directly from the source. So say you're sitting in Mecca, you heard that somebody in Basra or Baghdad had, uh, you know, was a good transmitter of one particular hadith report. He would just pack up and go across the desert and go get basically go get that hadith directly from the source. And of course, I mean, you're talking about an era um, in which women didn't just pack up. They often had families. Uh, The journeys were long um, and dangerous and so it was unusual it was, it, the bars were very high basically for a woman to be able to participate, um, to continue to participate in this domain and so I think that's why you see this uh, really precipitous decline and then just a disappearance of them from the record
0: And it's uh, I should say the statistics that you provide the analysis is very telling you provide some very accurate I mean 80 80- At one point, you quote 88% uh, for um, women who are in the chains of transmission, or ISNAD, uh, as the first link. And then it drops to 38% for women who are in the third link. So there's definitely this this proof is right there when you look at the chains of transmission.
1: That's really very striking.
0: Yeah. Um, One thing that I did want to ask, because of this idea of uh, the network um, for individuals who don't aren't as familiar that some of these networks were very much shared but those who were not in the same networks the same learning networks were there any sort of discrepancies in the maybe the amount of hadith transmitted by women Mm -hmm. in different collections
1: Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean i think that you know and again we're talking about um and uh, the earlier period, I mean, the ways in which these learning networks functioned, let's say across Islamic history, really differs, um, uh, you know, from one period to the next. But um, in the in the earlier period, let's say the generation of the companions and uh, these successors, I mean, learning was. Uh, um, uh, I mean, okay. So, for example, Aisha. Right. Let's say Aisha uh, Bintabi Becker, the wife of the prophet, this is the best example. Um, she, it, a lot of men and women would go to her, would try to find her to uh, learn a number of different traditions from her. Right. Um, and people knew, uh, people in subsequent generations knew who her students were. Um, uh, one of them was her nephew Orwa, Um, another was this woman Amra bin Abdurrahman right, Um, who's her niece and so the networks of these women in the successor generation, somebody like Amra um, would likely well not likely but they actually were more extensive because people knew that Amra had the hadith or she was teaching the hadith of Aisha who herself was known to be a Uh, a prolific transmitter of traditions. Um, So a lot of people sought her out for that. Um, I hope that answers your question.
0: No, it does. Yes, thank you very much. Um, No, but like I said before, though, the information and the the sort of the quantitative analysis is very striking in this chapter in terms of the decline.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I Um, I have to say, I mean, on that note, I was, I, I really... I still remember that feeling of okay, I'm doing something wrong. Uh, there, yeah, there's something I'm not checking, and so uh, you know, I would I spent you know an incredible amount of time checking across a range of sources, um, uh, thinking you know, there's there's something missing here. You know, I just haven't I haven't found the right book. You know, I found the right book that tells me what women are doing in this period. And it it really, um, you know, that feeling of sort of something something is is amiss. I I still remember it very clearly.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. And um, so then this is kind of what I guess for the entirety of the book, what we would kind of say is the sort of the, the nadir, the kind of the lower end. Yes. Um, and then as we start to transition out of this period, we kind of then see a revival and the revival is not a short lived, it's a very long, long lived revival beginning around the fourth century in Islam, the 10th century, uh, CE. And can you kind of start leading us through that portion of your work?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, when, when you see the, you know, what I call the revival in. um, in the classical sources, it's not uh, an overwhelming one initially. I mean, it it begins very slowly. I mean, you have a handful of entries in uh, the biographical dictionaries of farther east, let's say in Nishapur. Um, uh, you have women showing up in the biographical dictionaries there as being trustworthy sheikhas, right? Who um, were transmitting reports. Um, So around uh, the, um, uh, fourth century of the Hijri calendar, um, uh, you know. You uh, okay? So they're so they're mentioned as trustworthy sheikhs, um, and they're also sometimes mentioned as transmitting whole collections of hadith. So in the early period, right around the companions and successors, you have women transmitting individual reports. Um, but here in the survival period, women are transmitting collections of reports. So that's your first indication that something. Different is going on, right? Um, and indeed, I mean, this this ties into a point I'm going to make about the reasons for this revival. Um, what I discovered in my um, uh, in my research, as I tried to correlate trends in the participation of women across time and place uh, with these chronological, I mean, with what was going on, sort of broadly speaking, in, in terms of hadith transmission and just sort of political and social history um, in this period in, in Islam, is that there there are a number of noteworthy trends going on at the, at the same time. One very important one for my work is what we call the canonization of hadith, whereas in the earliest decades, and say up to the first century and a half of sober Islamic history, you just had a lot of reports that were floating around; some of them fabricated, some of them not. Um, by the fourth century, uh, there, the Sunnis at least have authoritative collections of hadith, um, which scholars—I mean, which scholars—have sifted through tens of thousands of reports, and they said, "Okay, these are the ones that we're going to count on for deriving Islamic law. These are the most trustworthy ones." So those are, um, and then. Uh, You know, other uh, scholars start to accept these as authoritative and there's this growing movement, let's say, to canonize these authoritative collections. Um, That becomes very important for women because what you can do, starting in the late uh, 4th, early 5th centuries, you can transmit a collection of hadith and know that what you're transmitting is, everybody accepts is accurate. You don't need to really... um, sort of be well-versed in Arabic grammar or the accurate transmission of traditions. You just need to memorize that book, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was important for women. I mean, they started to transmit collections, but they didn't need legal discernment or legal knowledge to be able to sift through these traditions. Also at this time, um, uh, sort of Hadith is becoming, Hadith transmission is becoming more of a distinct arena from law. And, and legal learning and so women are able to flourish in the uh, arena of hadith transmission we don't see them as much in the arena of law um there's also the growing acceptance of written transmission um which i mean you may you may not expect this but i it, mean it it enables women to participate in this uh field again because with again what they can do is they can count on written books instead of having to go directly to a teacher, many of them male, um and having to study one on one with them. They can just study the books at home, uh, essentially and transmit them later. Uh and accuracy is very important. I don't mean to sort of diminish what women are doing here, but um, you know, they are freed from basically from the demands of uh direct oral transmission. And lastly, this becomes more of an issue, but uh later, let's say uh, around the 5th or 6th century, um, and it's it's a complex social phenomenon, but we begin to see the scholarly classes or the scholars um, uh, sort of identifying themselves more and more in terms of kinship-based groupings. Um, they're families of ulama, and um, one of the hallmarks of a a good Alama family is that the men and the women both imbibed religious learning. And in this context, there was a greater incentive for men to train their daughters and the women of their family group. And women also then had family networks within which they could circulate to uh, engage in religious learning. So these are the three primary reasons why I think over time you see this revival of women in this domain.
0: (coughs) And regarding that last example, you actually provide uh, case studies to support that mm-hmm. as well.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, you know, the main well, the the case study that I think is is an early case study that's very interesting is uh, that of Fatima Bint Al Hassan, who is actually uh, the wife of a very well known classical scholar, Al Qushayri, and um, you know her, she is the daughter of the teacher, the sheikh of al-Qushayri. Uh, and um, it's clear that, you know, her learning as well as the learning of, uh, of her daughters and other women in the family was uh, very much a part of pedigree, you know, pedigree of establishing um, a, uh, an ulama family um, that was known for their trade, essentially trade in, in law and in learning traditions.
0: And um, one thing that you mentioned, that to uh, not dig- digress too much, mm-hmm. but we you're talking really throughout this work about the Sunni. Yes. Um, and not so much of the development and transmission within right. Shia circles. Um, but you do actually, you have produced work on that as well.
1: Yes, I have. And, um,
0: okay.
1: uh, you know, I think that, um, again, I, I have to thank my mentors for this, especially Hussein uh, um, Madari and I think this um, you know it's very important, especially when it comes to women's history uh, to not paint all of women's history with these broad brush strokes. Um, I, I have to confess that I expected similar patterns in the Shi'i sphere. Um, in the course of the research for the book I didn't really have time to um, uh, look at the Shia sources that closely. Um, I looked at I looked at some of them, and I saw, and I didn't see. Um, uh, you know, it seemed to me to be similar. But after I completed the book, I went back and looked at the sources, and um, it's it's actually quite different. I mean, the tradition of women's hadith transmission doesn't really take hold in Shiism, and here I'm talking about imami Shiism, in the same way that it does in Sunni Islam. Um, and there are a number of, uh, you know, sort of reasons for this, historical reasons for this. But in general, in imami Shi'ism, Hadith learning doesn't occupy the same space that it does in Sunni culture. And so we see, we see some very different patterns um, in, in the Shi'i sphere.
0: Absolutely. So we shouldn't. So we shouldn't expect the same trajectory. That Shia trajectory would be quite different.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, there's just less of this type of activity going on overall, um, okay. and She's or fewer records of it. Let's say.
0: Okay. And then also uh, one other thing is that. In addition, I know that really one of the, the most important thing was this canonization, but I also believe that you talk about, and I might be jumping ahead a little bit, mm-hmm. about kind of the development, basically the role that Hadith had played earlier versus this time period as well.
1: Yeah, um, uh, you. I'm sorry, I, I didn't I, f- fully understand the,
0: the... I guess in terms of uh, its role within the study of... Islam itself of mm-hmm. religion uh, because there was the in, at least in the initial periods I know that we you spoke about the ahal uh, of the uh, of the al hadith yeah. um, and that development and then that I don't know if I'm a little ahead of myself mm-hmm. but that that's become more that hadith are now part of you know what needs to be examined for
1: yeah yeah
0: legal rulings and things like that whereas that role like mulatazalites, for yeah. instance relied heavily on Quran and reason and Hadith was not part of their, you know, you know what they, what they relied upon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, it's a great question. I mean, it, it it goes to a a point that I make uh, early on in the book that I think that one of the things that we need to be attuned to and, in um, understanding this history is what we call, might call the social uses of knowledge, right? Um, and, uh, you know, you're absolutely right that in the early period, that is the period of the companions um, and the successors, there's a lot more scrutiny uh, as to actually just the value of Hadith itself. I mean, I of course, Western uh, scholarly tradition has called our attention to the fact that, you know, hadith are susceptible to forgeries, right? But Muslims were aware of this from the beginnings of their history onwards. Um, and so there was a real uh, debate um, within Muslim intellectual circles about, you know, what's, what's the use of these hadith? Um, uh, people could make it, make it up very easily. How are we going to uh, use them as a bedrock of, uh, der- for driving Islamic law, and um I think that you know women 's participation sort of uh, fell victim to those let's say one of the reasons you see a decline is that um the role of hadith really was not settled in that early period, but once it became settled, and this is where I talk about um uh you know in my in my work, I talk about the importance of Sunni traditionalism and the ways in which it um uh, promoted the study of Hadith. Once it became settled that Hadith are indeed important sources for Sunnis of law, I mean the second most important source, um, it became a uh, a marker of piety um, and one's sort of station in terms of the, the one standing in the uh, scholarly circles to uh, memorize Hadith to transmit it accurately. Um, so. You know, again, getting back to the idea of social uses of knowledge, I mean, because of other changes as well, like I, that I talked about, such as written transmission, etc. cetera, um, women could easily uh, tap into this social use to acquire a type of um, a cultural capital for themselves. I mean, they could they were accepted as heavy transmitters uh, because it was a good thing to do in that society. I mean, it was meritorious in a variety of ways
0: thank you and uh then transition so transitioning into the fourth and final chapter of the you know the four main chapters of your work right. it's the continuation of this well at this point it's not really a revival but the continuation of right. uh we call it the culmination i think <laughs> the culmination um uh, that lasts uh from about the 12th to the 15th century and then there's kind of then an, you talk about another decline, but that decline happens for different reasons right. than the decline that origi- that happened after the first century. Yes. So, would you go ahead and lead us through that as well? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, the um, so here too. I mean, in the, in the last chapter, I mean, I have I kind of center my um, uh, my chapter on case studies, and the two uh, case studies I have here are of uh, fairly prolific Mamluk hadith transmitters Zainab bin al-Kamal and Aisha bin uh, Muhammad um, uh, ibn al Hadi and I mean it's the continuation of some of the same trends right the uh, importance of um, uh, hadith learning for all the families the importance of Uh, written transmission or the acceptability of written transmission. But in this uh, classical period, I mean, one new thing that we see here is um, the importance of what are called Isnad Ali, that is short chains of transmission. Um, uh, And the idea here is that uh, uh, Muslims are getting farther and farther. I mean, by the Mamluk period, 13th, 14th century, Muslims are, um, very conscious of being farther and farther away from the authority of the prophet, farther removed from the golden age. Um, and in an attempt to sort of, uh, you know, be closer to that period, it was thought that if you acquired the shortest possible chains of transmission, um, uh, then that would, you know, sort of be a marker of piety. It was it was considered something uh, valuable in the society, and in this context, uh, hadith transmitters who lived long lives and who could learn hadith in their when they were very very young, right, and then transmit them when they were very very old, were. Um, uh valuable because using them meant that you could shorten the trains of transmission. And um you know intriguingly, there's this you know women are known for their longevity and in this period as well, um, uh, many of the well-known hadith transmitters that we have are very long-lived. Woman, so zainab bint al kamal for example i mean it, it recurs in her biographies that she transmitted with short chains of transmission she lived to be nearly 100 years old um, aisha um, was, i think died in her 80s or 90s but they you know again there it, there is a um, there's a cultural value to being associated with these women who had learned the material very very well, um, uh, and who also lived long enough to transmit it with short chains, so that's a, something new that's going on uh, in this period that helps to account for women being uh, continuing to be coveted sources of hadith.
0: And then the, as you talk about the, with the rise of the the end of the. Um, I guess it would be the end of the Mamluk period, or the rise of the Ottomans. The rise of
1: the Ottomans, the, yeah.
0: Yes, it's the, uh, the sort of a new period of decline.
1: Yeah, and, um, you know, to, to be honest, I, I mean, this is something that I, um, you know, there are two uh, trends that I saw in this period, um, and I did not have a chance to explore them as fully as I'd wanted to, but my, my sense is that Hadith learning overall um, is not as important or hadith learning for the sake of hadith learning right not as a tool uh, or an avenue to becoming a jurist for example it doesn't have the same cachet that it um, uh, in the Ottoman period early Ottoman period that it did in the Mamluk period Um, so I think women fall out of the picture partly for that reason and um, uh, another reason is I mean or let's say they're diverted I, i I'm, I started to see in the historical records increasing um, references to women uh, who were accomplished as uh, as Sufis who had joined tariqas, right, um, and were known for their uh, Sufi practices or Sufi learnings. Um, uh, there's also there are also increasing mentions of women who are uh, known for their poetry. But less, less, and less for hadith transmission, and I think this is true of men as well. But again, I didn't have a chance to do sort of a, a thorough study, so I, um, uh, you know, don't feel as comfortable making these assertions with respect to the early Ottoman period. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then. We move on, on to the conclusion, and you actually made reference to some of the uh, some of the conclusions that you uh, you found throughout this book. Specifically, uh, one thing that struck that stuck out to me was parallels to in terms of comparative religious studies right. how these trends have kind of how they're mirrored in other traditions. Right,
1: right, um, and yeah, and and you know, it's it's what what I've mentioned before that I think that. Um, you know, institutionalization across religious traditions has um, has the bad reputation of uh, not being friendly to women. Um, uh, you know that in, in different ways, institutionalizations of, uh, let's say, of church structures or um, uh, religious hierarchies means that women, for one reason or the other, are excluded from these structures, um, and it's, or that it's hard for them to gain authority, um, uh, because of whatever bars are in place. Um, I, I don't know that it's, um, you know, I think that what I'm, what I'm arguing in the Muslim case is not explicit. This is not explicit discrimination against women per se. It's, um, it's happenstance. And, um, it's because of this happenstance that women are you know, their roles are refashioned later on in the classical period. Um, I think that's a very strong case uh, right there for saying that this is not because of explicit gender uh, discrimination in the Muslim case. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, there are others who've done studies in Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Christianity and Judaism, looking at the ways in which women reemerge um, as religious authority figures in in less formal spheres or outside institutional structures. And I think these kinds of uh, parallels really need to be teased out in work that's more uh, rigorously comparative than mine was. But it's, it's, it's fascinating to me to see how, uh, you know, there are these similarities.
0: The overlap, yes. Yeah. Um, are there any other concluding notes that our listeners should know about?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, one of the, I guess, I don't know that I would call it a regret, but I guess I, I would say a footnote here is that um, given the current interest in, you know, women and their religious participation, particularly women as figures of authority in the, in the contemporary world, I mean, uh, thanks to, uh, you know, fairly conservative, I would say, radical groups in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. I mean, there is this uh, question about whether women can serve as authoritative mm-hmm. figures and you know uh, whether they're entitled to religious education i think works such as mine sort of put that uh, notion to rest i mean it's a well-established uh, tradition in islam um... but i think what i also uh, intend to say in this book is that the tradition of the female hadith transmission the transmitter is not really one that we should expect to see now um, Uh, because historical circumstances don't call for it, right? Um, uh, We have very different contexts, or uh, actually our contemporary contexts don't call for it. We have very different uh, contexts right now. But what we do see, and very interestingly, when we think about women in religious education and Islam, is that increasingly women are uh, gaining uh, familiarity, or not, not familiarity, I'm sorry, are being acknowledged as jurists, and as um, uh, exegetes, that is, uh, Quran uh, interpreters of the, of the Quran. And that's fascinating to me, right? I mean, what is it about contemporary circumstances that allows women to emerge as authority figures in, in different contexts? And how uh, are they calling upon tradition to legitimize what they do and to give themselves more authority. So I think that there is a, a, the part two will not be written by me, certainly, but there is a part two to be written here that I think, uh, could be potentially be very interesting because of contemporary context.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much for all the time that you've taken to, uh, speak with us. Um, before we let you go is, are there any upcoming projects that you'd like to tell our listeners about?
1: Um, sure. I, um, I have actually, uh, made my way a little bit more to the modern period um, recently. My interest in education continues, um, uh, but uh, this is education more broadly speaking. My next project actually has to do with what I call the texts and textual practices of uh, contemporary Muslim education in different centers across the world. So right now I'm focusing on Morocco. Um, I mean, Muslim education is another one of these Hot topics right now, but um, we know very little actually about what people are reading, how they're reading it, when they uh, say when somebody goes to study Islamic law, uh, in in centers for learning today. So I am trying to document actually what texts are being used and the ways in which people are engaging with those texts. I mean, how are they mem- are they memorizing them? Are they analyzing them? And I'm trying to um, uh, focus on educational centers that uh welcome or have uh you know male and female enrollments uh so that women and and uh men are you know acquiring higher islamic education in those centers
0: permit you some field study
1: uh something I mean, I'm, I'm a textualist and i think i always will be one but it, inquir- it it requires that i travel a bit more than this project did yeah so i'll be headed off to morocco this summer
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank
1: you. This was great.
0: Okay. Thanks for speaking with us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for joining us as we spoke with Professor Asma Saeed about her book, Women and the Transmission of Religious Knowledge in Islam. Be sure to stay tuned in the upcoming weeks for another posting on the Islamic Studies section, or be sure to check out one of our other channels here on the New Books Network. Thank you very much for joining us.